Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our focus today will be on the topic of disruption in healthcare delivery. And I can think of very, very few people who are better experienced uh, to discuss this topic than Dr. Steve Clasco. Dr. Stephen Clasco is the president and CEO of Philadelphia-based Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. In this role, which he has held since 2013, Dr. Clasco has led one of the nation's fastest growing academic health institutions based on his vision of reimagining the future of healthcare delivery. Jefferson Health has grown from three hospitals in 2013 to 14 hospitals in 2018. His 2017 merger of Thomas Jefferson University with Philadelphia University created a professional university with top 20 programs in, and listen to this, in fashion, design, health, and the first design thinking curriculum in a medical school. His track record earned him a place as tied for number two most influential individuals in healthcare by Modern Healthcare just this past year in 2018. He's also received the number 21 in Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business also in 2018. And he was elected as Philadelphia's Entrepreneur of the Year again just this past year in 2018. All quite remarkable. He's an obstetrician, has been dean of two medical schools, and believes that creativity is the key skills for students in any profession in the age of augmented intelligence and robotics. Steve, I can't tell you what a privilege and a pleasure it is to have you on the program. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great, and thanks. I'm a big fan also. I've read your book, and uh, it's really exciting to be on something uh, where people are going to be listening and maybe get every time you have one of these podcasts, if you can get 10 people to say, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore and we have to disrupt the system, then you've really done something great. Steve, I couldn't agree more with you. That is the, the purpose of the book, and that's the purpose of the podcast. It's not just to inform and connect and inspire. Uh, it is actually to catalyze some actual change. And so I am completely on board with you. That is my purpose here. So let's jump in because there's so many questions I want to ask you, and, and your time is so precious. In our correspondence, I asked you the question, what burning topics did you really want to talk about? And I have to say, your responses were fantastic. Here's what you wrote. Healthcare is changing 180 degrees. It's a failure of our responsibility that we don't select and prepare doctors for the future, that we don't help the current workforce to be creative and happy at their jobs, and that we don't embrace the move to patients as boss. So let me first start by asking you this question. How do you see in what ways is healthcare changing 180 degrees? What do you mean by that? Well, look, I, I think it's going to change a little bit over our dead body, but I think the fact is that for the first time, Patients are saying, you know, I don't understand why healthcare hasn't joined the consumer revolution. And I think some of this is, you know, the decrease in what I call OPM, other people's money. So now that a lot more of it is, is folks' own money, they're saying, hey, you know, I, I need to compare these two. Why aren't they transparent? I think some of it is, frankly, uh, millennials and, and younger people don't have the kind of patience that we do. I wrote an article that got me in a a lot of trouble because I said we have too much respect for doctors. You know, if you have an appointment at 8, doctor shows up at 8.45, you get the, oh, I'm sure, Dr. Clasco, I'm sure you had an emergency. Well, sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not true. 
But in any other industry, you know, um, you'd have the respect to make sure that you know the patient knew that before. So, so look, I think I think what's about to happen is that we're going to be driven, kicking and screaming, into uh, an era like everything else in travel and, and retail, and. The decision for all of us, whether you're a primary care doc or whether you're a hospital system, is are you going to be Macy's, Sears, and Pennies that said, hey, you know, that, that'll never happen? Are you going to close all your hospitals and become Amazon? That's probably not a good thing. Or when I talk about this, I say, I want to be Target and Walmart. Target and Walmart were great stores, and they decided but that they had to become much more consumer-centric. They have a great e-business, and they have great stores. I have 14 hospitals. I want if somebody has pancreatic cancer, you know, they're not concerned about the size of the TV. They want to go to the best doc. But I also want to be the place where people look at how Jefferson can help them be healthier at home. And, you know, being that, that place that can be that whole continuum is what we want to be. Now, in that same phrase, and there's so much there we're, we're going to get into. I'm going to, I've been taking notes here as you've been talking. You talk about this idea of embracing the move to patients as boss, and, and I know you've discussed and written about this issue of the patient as consumer. So what does that mean, the patient as boss, and what, how do you see this, this move to consumerism, and, and how are you, are, there, are you taking concrete steps to make that happen or to accommodate for that at Jefferson? Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing is we have to recognize that as the healthcare ecosystem has sort of, you know, mailed it in as it relates to marketing, right? I mean, you know, I'm really, really tired of watching, you know, the morning shows on any of the cable news and seeing somebody, you know, has got cancer, dejected, walk into a cancer center and walk out and they're frolicking with their, with their grandchildren. That's not how it is. So the issue of really, you know, uh, what we've come to call it, Jefferson, consumer segmentation. We get so excited, Zev, about patient-centered care like, like we just discovered that, and like there's one patient, right? I mean, Amazon doesn't look at one shopper or one consumer. They've got it down to about a million nine hundred seventy-three thousand different consumers. So we at Jefferson are, are starting to think about this in our patient experience group around maybe six different groups of consumers. But just to put it, of, an example on that, it's not just age-related. A baby boomer with three Fitbits. We're going to engage with them in a very different way than a 25-year-old millennial that doesn't think they need any health care or a 70-year-old with uh, colorectal cancer. All three of them need to interact with Jefferson in very, very, very different ways. But, but they need to be the boss. They need to be able to help us understand the best way for them to interact with Jefferson instead of us being arrogant and saying, we've got one way and this is what it is. As I'm listening to you, this idea of segmentation, this, this market-based principle that every other industry uses and uses effectively because it actually allows, allows you to customize care and deliver more products and services. So in the past, I think we've been organized, uh, perhaps segmented around conditions or around diseases, uh, around body systems. And as I'm hearing you speak, what you're saying is let's, let's shift our segmentation to actually situations, needs of the patient, rather than the way we see the world. And so is that how you're thinking or, or is it different than that? Yeah, I, I think, I, and by the way, I think it's, it's both individuals and populations, so, you know, let's just talk about populations for a second. We, we love to talk about population health, and we think if we just say population health that we're absolved of actually doing any population health. So we're, we're in a place in Philadelphia with six academic medical centers, two in the top 25 in the country, 
uh, we're one of them. And you think, well, I want to move to Philadelphia because it must be like the healthiest star place on the planet. Well, you'd be wrong. We have the greatest discrepancy in life expectancy of any city in the country. A baby born today at Jefferson that goes to a zip code of 19147 called Society Hill that has like three Whole Foods will live to 2104. Baby born today at Jefferson that goes 6.2 miles away to North Strawberry Mansion will live to less than 2090. So at the end of the day, it's because we've taken this sort of attitude of, well, you know, if you come into my hospital, you get good care. But half these folks have food deserts. Half these folks don't have enough money for gas in their car. So we've tried to create a model. Again, where, where they can access Jefferson in the easiest way that they can. I had a, I had a great uh, debate with Sasha and Jane in Chicago for Met City Invest a few weeks ago. And the question was, is consumerism overhyped? And obviously I, I said it isn't. But one of the things that Sasha, uh, the points he was making is, well, you know, telehealth is really cool, but it's only for rich people. Well, that, that's the one thing I really disagreed with because our, our largest percentage users of Jeff Connect are in this major homeless thing we have with Sister Mary. Why? Because they don't have gas in the car. They don't have a car, but they do have a cell phone. So I think starting to look at how people currently use technology and having Jefferson be embedded in that, I think, becomes incredibly important. When it gets down to the individual, look, all I can say is, is there anything where a 25 or 26 year old doesn't use their thumbs for communication, right? So, you know, one of the companies that we're looking at starting is a match.com between obstetricians and patients. Because, you know, when, when, when I was in private practice, it used to be a patient would think she was pregnant. She'd go to her 65 year old male primary care doctor who would do a test and say, congratulations, you're pregnant. I'm sending you to my obstetrician, Dr. Clasco. There's 0.0% chance that today a 25-year-old would take that advice for the most important thing in their life from a 65-year-old male and say, oh, great, that's who I'll go to. Now they'll say, well, that's nice, Dr. Jones. That might be who you'd go to if you ever get pregnant, which you won't. But I need to compare it. I need to go online. I want somebody to accept my door, predominantly female. So we're actually creating a match.com that people can start to compare their, their docs based on what they customizably want, the way they would do everything else in the world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds radical and it sounds, you know, disruptive, but at the same time, as I'm hearing you speak, it sounds exactly the way the rest of our life works, the way every other industry is working. Are you doing any other, and this also smacks a little bit of, of customer relationship management. That's a term that's been thrown around for the last few years. I really haven't seen much in the way of success with that yet, but how else? Do you have any other stories or examples of how you're really moving to accommodate the customer or the healthcare customer in a different way? Yeah. So, by the way, I, I just I, I'm just going to comment on one thing. You know, I, I, I get called disruptive and radical a lot. I, I think I'm just stating the obvious and, and I'm not trying to be funny, but I think that most of the people in my situation, because they're really smart people that are running, you know, five or six billion dollar healthcare entities, you know, most of them are in their late 60s. And they probably recognize this also. They just would rather, you know, skid along until the new guy comes in and it really hits the fan. So the way we've looked at this, Zeb, and my commencement speaker this year will be uh, John Scully, who is the former CEO of Apple and has really done a lot now in innovating healthcare. And he said, Steve, get away from talking about the individual technologies, the individual things you're doing for the consumer. He said, nobody should talk about telehealth. 
he said, we don't talk about telebanking, right? You don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'll telebank today. It's just the banking has gone from being really inconvenient, 90% in the bank, and if it's a day like today before 4 p.m. or you weren't going to basically have the transaction, to 90% being at home through a variety of technologies. So we've gotten away from talking about any of the buzzwords. We actually call Jefferson's piece, if you walk into my offices, healthcare with no address. That we want to be the place where our patients, our consumers, can consume healthcare the way that they are able to access every other consumer good. So I can give you a couple examples of things that we're doing now and things that we're planning on doing. The thing that we've been very successful with is with unscheduled care. We have one of the largest telehealth specialty networks. It's all homegrown. It's all emergency medicine docs and specialists. And we have theorized that 60% or 65% of our non-trauma, non-ambulance patients that come to our ED where they wait for three or four hours because they're competing with trauma patients and whatever could be taken care of either through one of our urgent care centers, through telehealth, or through an appointment the next morning at 7 a.m. And it was all part of a virtual triage thing. Because we don't own our insurance company, it was hard to get an insurance plan that wanted to really partner with us on that. So we were almost incentivized to do the, the wrong thing, right? If, if patients came into my ED, the average cost would be $1,500. If we did it the other way, the average cost was somewhere around $150. But now we had an opportunity with our 32,000 employees where we're self-insured and our TPA is Aetna to say, let's really test this. So we, we did a thing where we said, here's the new rule. If you go in through Jeff Connect and you think you need to go to the emergency room and we send you to the emergency room, you'll have a zero deductible. By the way, if you get admitted, you'll still have a zero deductible. If you just show up to our ED, again, non-trauma, non-ambulance, non-heart attack, if you just show up to our ED, it'll be a $500 deductible and it'll be an increased deductible. Not only that, when you actually come to our ED, anybody, you're actually getting triaged through that same Jeff Connect virtual triage. You're getting in front of a screen and they're triaging you. So you don't have to wait for the nurse who's like, you know, resuscitating the person with the CPR. And it's been incredibly efficient. We've been able to get something around 35 or 40% of our patients that would have come to our ED, out of our ED, they're happier. Since we're self-insured, it's costing us a whole lot less. And we're, we're basically creating a system where the sickest people are going to where they need to go. So that's just an example of something that's, that's worked really well. I think the one that we're probably most excited about, and it's, you know, it went from being science fiction-y to it will happen in the future, is you mentioned that we... Um, merged with actually now the number three fashion design university in the country. Who would have thought that a 195-year-old academic medical center would be the third, uh, after Parsons and FIT, the, the third top uh, fashion design university in the country. But through a series of events that I won't go through all of them, we partnered with a, with a company through our fashion design university that's carbonizing hemp to create wearables. So on the Australian Stock Exchange now, we're a partner in that company. We own part of that company. And I believe that within three or four years, you will go to sleep with a, uh, with a wearable that will basically measure your heart rate, measure your, you'll be able to throw your Apple Watch away, sorry, Apple, and it'll literally communicate with your Alexa, your Google Home, or your HomePod, who will have monitored your respiratory rate if you have asthma, and then it will have pre-looked at what the pollen count is, what the weather is, what the AQI is. And when you wake up and you say whatever you'd say, Alexa or whatever, it'll say, look, the AQI is this, the pollen count is this, and your respiratory rate was a little labored, 
you should take an extra inhaler today. We've already texted your uh, family doc, etc. That's not science fiction anymore. It's not available today. But with the wearable that's now being tested and with where I think virtual voice assistants will be going, we've just started a, a whole virtual voice assistant model in uh, one of our hospitals down in South Philadelphia where patients literally can, in essence, a smart room where they can start to do most of the things that they would have had to call in a nurse to do to turn the temperature up, turn the temperature down, turn the TV on, turn the TV off. Now we're going to partner with some companies that can automatically do water and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to really look at all the things that are obvious in other industries. Uh, one other thing is we have 36 hospitals that use us for neuroscience. And it used to be that if you were in one of those outlying hospitals and you came in for a post-op check, you'd have to travel the three hours, pay $35 park, and travel the three hours back. We're now able to do about 35% of our, uh, of our neurosurgery post-op visits, sending them home with a robot and doing them at home through telehealth. Boy, oh boy, you, you've shared so much, and there's so many different directions we could go. And I, I mean, you're wrapping healthcare around the patient, both at, as you say, at the individual level, you're thinking about it that way, and you're thinking about it at the population level, for instance, with some of this ED work you're doing to help people navigate through the healthcare system. So it seems like you're coming at it from all sides and everywhere. The one question that comes to my mind is, is how do you decide where to focus? Are you just doing it in every division and every department? And, or do you have sort of a framework or a structure that you keep in your head about you know, how you're organizing. I'm just curious how you're thinking about it. Yeah, so, so, so one thing we do is we, you know, purge the thought, we actually talk to patients and we talk, you know, we have, we have patient and, and president's advisory boards and we say, you know, we start to say, what can you do in the rest of your consumer life that you can't do in, in healthcare? So I'll just give you one example. We did this as a pilot. We haven't really expanded it yet. But if you come to an NCI cancer center, which we're one, and let, let's just say, you know, your mom's in an NCI cancer center and, and you're living in Miami and your sister's in Denver. In 2019, Zeb, you're still calling your mom and saying, what did the doctor say? I don't know. He or she came in at 530 in the morning, young people that look like they just got out of high school, but I think they're called residents. But I'm confused. I have no idea what he said. I was half asleep. Well, put me over to the nurse's station. Ding, 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 ding. I like to talk to the doctor. I'm concerned about my mom. Oh, here she's in the OR. You know, hopefully they'll call you back. That's in 2019. So we, we did a pilot where we partnered with a, a company where we basically, you know, when you come in, said, who would you like to talk to? I'd like to talk to my daughter in, in Denver, my son in Miami, whatever. Um, we sent them HIPAA compliant software. We texted them when they, we made rounds and they were part of rounds. Now, you know, that got put in Fortune magazine as an interesting pilot. And I realized I was really proud of ourselves. So I realized, hey, we could have done that three years ago with FaceTime five years ago with Skype or 15 years ago with the phone. But the patients didn't demand that level of customer service and we didn't really care. So I think the answer is it is very well thought out in that we're trying to think of the things that don't make sense in healthcare and both what would really change that and make it easier for patients. I have an obsession about making what's difficult in healthcare easier. And there's some things that, that, that my folks have to just go and say, we can't do it. You know, it's just, it's just too difficult today. Um, so then we say, all right, well, we'll put that on the back burner, but what can we do today? Now, you know, you mentioned that we, you know, we started this, this master's in design. So things I'm most proud of is we now take a certain amount of kids from Princeton University uh, each year where they get into our medical college, Cindy Kimmel Medical College, after their first year at Princeton, Zeb, 
And we tell them to major in something cool, probably not biology or chemistry. They have to take the minimum amount of biology and chemistry courses. They don't have to take the MedCats, terrorist of thought. And they end up getting an MD, Master's in Design. And the whole concept of that is they're going to be working with architecture and fashion design and systems people that have never worked in healthcare, but know really about how the human experience can be done easier. So you're going to have those fresh things, whether it's about urban planning or whether it's about how uh, humans can access the system easier that haven't been perverted by having the creativity sucked out of them by the healthcare ecosystem. So let me just understand, you said MD design, is that what you said? Yeah, it's, it's a five-year program, MD Master's of Design. MD as in like medical doctor and a Master's of Design. Yeah, so, so these, these kids are going to basically become doctors, but then, you know, literally have both a year within their four years and an extra year being taught by architecture, design, systems folks around, all right, now that you've gotten the creativity sucked out of you, we're going to suck it back in. That is amazing. I've never heard of anything like that. You know, I know you you took a look at the at the book I just published, and there are two chapters in that book about design. Out of the eleven chapters, I mean, that's how important I thought it was. And uh, there were two chapters on rebranding that is, you know, really recreating the value proposition for healthcare. So I'm completely in agreement, and this is so exciting. I wish I wish I'd known this. I would have put your example in the book. What do you think is going to happen when you when you've got an army of MDs who are also trained in design thinking? I mean. What's your vision for what they're going to do? Well, I think the first thing they'll do is they're going to be a real pain in the neck to the faculty. What, what I tell the students when I talk to them, it gets, it gets my faculty really upset, but I say, look, you know, ask the question why. <laughs> you know, just like when, when you're doing your clerkships, like why are we putting through patients through this? Why are patients waiting 45 minutes in, 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 the, in the waiting room if we knew we were, we were running behind? Why, 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 why? And I think the whole issue of design is how can you creatively, you know, have humans interact with their environment in a way that's both good for the human and good for the environment, if you think about it. And in some respects, a good part of design is delayering the system. And I think if, if, if I was going to say one thing, if I could wave a magic wand around healthcare, I would defragment and delayer the system. And that's both internally and across the ecosystem. So internally, you know, we did a thing where we just looked at somebody deciding that they want to come in to see one of our cardiologists or somebody deciding that they want to get their breast checked. From the time they make that decision to the time that they actually go through everything and let's say have a mammogram and there's 62 touch points. And now if you can get that down to 15, you know, you're, you're decreasing cost, you're increasing the patient experience, you're increasing access, and you're increasing quality because you're not going to make as many mistakes. You know, chaos theory, everything, everything else basically says the more touch points there are, it exponentially increases the cost. So you just hit the quadrangle, you know, cost, access, patient experience, and quality by just decreasing those touch points. And then if you take the whole healthcare ecosystem and you say, well, let's, let's see, we've got providers that are totally separate from quote, insurers slash payers, who are a middle layer to make sure that, you know, people that pay for the care, the people that get the care, the people that provide the care don't talk to each other. They got another layer of pharma. Oh, but that's not enough because now we have pharmacy benefit managers between pharma and the insurers and the providers, you know, and then we're amazed that we're not efficient, right? I mean, imagine if Amazon ran that way. Imagine if, you know, the, the, the people that send you the stuff weren't 
weren't allowed to talk to the people that actually sent that, that were providing the stuff. I mean, it, you know, that's how that's how retail used to be, and that's why it used to be that you know you order your whatever you're on your book, and we'll, you'll get it in seven to ten days, you know, because everything required a two-day thing. Well, we got to talk to the place. That'll take us two days, and you got to talk to this. That's how government still runs. So at the end of the day, you know, I believe that, that if we start to de-layer and defragment the system, that it will become a better design and a much more efficient system with better access, better quality, a better patient experience and a lower cost. But, and by the way, that's disruptive. But, but, you know, the reason I laugh when people say it's disruptive, 40 years ago, my mentor, a guy named Bill Kissick, wrote a book called Medicines, Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. And he said, he was the first guy to talk about the iron triangle of cost, access, and quality. And he said, if anybody ever tells you they're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it's not going to be disruptive and painful, they're not telling the truth. So if you just think about what, what's been out there, President Obama said the ACA will increase access, increase quality, decrease cost, and it won't be painful. That's a quote. President Trump said the Republican thing will be terrific, unbelievable, fantastic, and huge. But I think he, he meant that. So the fact is we're going to need disruption if we want to pretend we're going to get after the iron triangle or the iron quadrangle. So you're, you're creating this army of people who are going to be coming up through the ranks as clinicians, as physicians, and I, I imagine others as well to redesign healthcare, all going to be asking why, going to be defragmenting and, and simplifying and, and designing it for the human experience with tremendous value. But in the meantime, are you embedding designers right now in, are the ideas that you're generating and others, are they coming from designers that you have embedded in your system? Yeah, I think one of the really cool things is, you know, while we're two campuses since we've acquired the university that really concentrated on design and architecture, those folks are embedded. If, you know, if you come down to Philadelphia, my office where I'm talking to you now was the first Federal Reserve for the United States of America. We had the presidential seal right above me. And right below me is the country's largest vault. That is led by emergency medicine doc named Bon Koo, Dr. Bon Koo, who runs the Jeff Design. It's in that hundred and some year old vault. Uh, they used to hold cold bullion. And it includes people from architecture, people from design, people from fashion, and those Princeton students and, and our other medical students that choose to get involved in this are really literally sitting there together with folks that have never interacted with healthcare. They're, they're asking questions like, I don't understand. Why do you guys do things like, like that? And, you know, that's a good question. I have no idea why we do things like that. What could we do differently? And they're literally sitting there and thinking about how they can design. I'll give you one example. We, we have one of the largest head and neck services. And, you know, the way it used to be is somebody had head and neck cancer. You would take a, a bit of their mandible out. You would send that and CT scan the striker. $15,000 later or whatever it was, they would send you something back a few days later. We now, in that vault literally create, based on the CAT scan, create the, the model and on our 3D printer, sterilize it and send it up to OR. And we just did a thing, we, we just did an abstract on it. It was unbelievable with folks with disfigurements and tumors in Haiti that couldn't afford any of the surgery where we literally, because we do a, um, a mission to Haiti every year, we would take like 10 or 20 patients that literally are totally disfigured that we would get the CAT scans, we would deconstruct the CAT scan, we would make 
the model here. We would sterilize it, put it in a plastic bag, and bring it down with our surgeons and change 20 people's lives for about $2.50 plus the airfare for the surgeon. So those are examples where design matters. But design is also really mattering in asking those questions about, like, why, why do you have so many touch points when you see a patient? That will fundamentally change the way that we do things. Right. I mean, design is both at the level you you were just sharing with us at at products, things that are tangible that you can touch and, and implant, and, but it's also at the level of the experience and the ecosystem that you're talking about as well. And so you're talking about redesigning everything is what I'm hearing you say. I think the key to all of this is creativity. I, I, I wasn't kidding when I said we tend to suck out the creativity in medicine because it's always been, you know, we did a survey. When I graduated from Wharton, I got a grant to look at what makes doctors different than depending on the audience, either other people or normal people. And what we found is that the way we select and educate docs, we've joined a cult around four biases, a competitive bias, an autonomous bias, a hierarchical bias, and a non-creative bias. And the interesting thing about the non-creative bias, probably in our heart and soul, we're just as creative as anybody else. But when we ask physicians, what got you to where you are? It was strategy, focus, discipline, science. When we asked really successful other people, it was creativity, number one or number two. So in a world that's changing, if you're a competitive, autonomous, hierarchical, non-creative creature, you're going to fight it. Uh, whereas if you believe you're creative, you're going you're to go for it. So we're trying to create creative docs. So what we've done in our university now is we're starting, starting this year in July, every one of our students has to take at least two required courses in creativity. My son's an actor. He's actually doing an improv class for some of our students and residents. Because think about improv. Improv, you actually have to listen. Doctors really stink at that. And the cool thing about improv is that somebody might say something totally off the thing. Usually doctors are ready to answer something before they even listen to the patient. Here you have to actually listen. You have to think quick, and you have to communicate. Boy, those are good things for for docs, right? So, So we're starting to think about things really, really differently. And here's another thing. We've really decreased some of the you know, biochemistry, microbiology that's repetitive, and we're, we have a whole humanities at Jefferson. We have our kids actually go, and in their third year, they take some of their experience in their clerkship, either very positive or very negative, work with one of the local theater companies, and actually come up with five-minute vignettes where they both help write the play and act. I mean, those are really important because it sort of recreates that creativity, and it also has them start to recognize that they're a human. You know, Steve, I'm, I'm listening to you, and I hope you don't mind if I inject some personal information here. I, I wish I had met you years ago. When I was, I was an academic for the first dozen years of my career, and I taught internal medicine residents in New York City, and I studied, in fact, uh, a lot of things uh, on the side that I brought into my training of the residents. Uh, I studied family therapy. I studied, which is a very eclectic thing. I, I studied uh, improv, actually. And I used to teach. I brought in professionals as well. But I used to co-teach for years improv to the internal medicine residents for exactly the same reason, to get them out of that kind of mindset of, of objectifying the, the, the individual that they're taking care of and really being creative, that whole yes and thing. So listening, really, really listening and saying yes and and sort of creating that health together as opposed to the you know kind of form that we taught them to say and the questions we taught them to say. You know, and I'll say this too, in my career, you know, I've been in healthcare for now over 20 years, 25 years. And, you know, coming back to even doing the podcast and writing a book, uh, I think in some sense it was this realization that we had to, I had to personally bring this creativity back into my professional life. I just felt it was a necessity. So I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you. And I, I hope you don't mind my sharing that with you. 
you you talk about you know uh, about bringing the design thinking and that expertise and and now there's another thing that you also alluded to which is healthcare disparities the social determinants of health there's a whole other and I don't know if you if you got to that chapter in my book but there's a whole other uh, segment of knowledge and wisdom and experience and training around dealing with the social determinants of health I'm, I'm just wondering how are you thinking about because I know you're you're very very interested in this and and concerned about this and and active in this domain you've got a Philadelphia collaborative for health equity, which I'd love you to speak about. Are you thinking about this the same way as sort of, you know, for instance, you talk about the MD students, is anyone getting trained in understanding communities and that could come up and, and, and also help us transform healthcare in that way? Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, you know, chapter 11, you know, which, which really talks about that reframing of social determinants. The answer is yes. I mean, so I, I'll give you sort of uh, three different things that, that we're doing. The first thing is, we recognized how important, I, what I've told my board is, if all I've done, you know, in my, you know, what will be 10 years here when, on our 200th anniversary, is make Jefferson bigger and better, and I haven't changed Philadelphia, or I haven't been a nidus to change Philadelphia, then I've only done half the job. So I think, you know, one of the things, you mentioned the Philadelphia Collaboration for Health Equities, one of the things I'm really proud of is, you know, generally you have galas, you raise a million dollars at the gala to get a bigger MRI than your competitor or to get a new piece of equipment. We actually raised a million and a half dollars at our last gala to create the Philadelphia Collaboration for Health Equities. How can we partner with social agencies around the city to start to reduce those disparities? The second thing is there's a great quote from Upton Sinclair. It's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. You know, I made a controversial statement that, you know, if you want to look at what a health system is going to look like in your area, ignore what's on their website, ignore what the board says, look at how the CEO is getting incentivized, right? Because every website talks about diversity, disparities, equity, quality, access, and every CEO is incentivized by heads and beds, EBITDA, U.S. News World Report. You know, you're not going to have those things happen. In, in our place, you know, uh, my board took 25% of my personal incentives and made them based on making a dent in health equity in, in Philadelphia. And then the third thing is you can mobilize your students because, you know, most students got into to medicine. You read their personal statements because they really care about this stuff. So one of the things that we've done, so you take that 5% of patients that uses 50% of healthcare resources, and, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We did something called hot spotting. It's really fascinating because what it does is it takes nursing students, medical students, has them work together and imagine this, actually talk to patients. So, you know, one of the examples they gave me is a patient with chronic conditions. She was developmentally disabled. She had a colostomy. She was on government assistance and she had been into the ER eight times in the last six months. They calculated, probably used up about $500,000 worth of resources. Well, some of it was literally just that she didn't really know how to take care of a colostomy. She knew if she came to the ER, somebody would do it and she could get reoriented. So they actually talked to her. They helped her. They actually had a texting relationship with her, so if she had any questions. So she's gone six months now without coming into our ER. She's happier. Obviously, it's, it's been a lot less cost. There's no question that students and, and we can be a nidus for having patients change their behavior. The whole issue of, you know, going back from, from house to Marcus Welby, from doing house calls and doing those kind of things that's not radical anymore, and that's not retro. That just makes a hell of a lot of sense. We have 149 orthopedists. They do about 60% of their rehab now at home. It's not an incremental change in cost. 
it's not going down from an average of five thousand dollars in a need replacement bundle to forty five hundred. It's going down from five thousand to five hundred, and the patients are happier because they're doing it at home. Some of it is you know doing it at home on a TV or internet. Some of it is people coming out like you would have a trainer come out to your house. Think about this: having a trainer come out to your house might cost seventy five dollars. The fixed cost of going to an inpatient rehab center. First of all, somebody's got to drive you, so that means that that person isn't going to work till later. You're going to go there. It's probably a few thousand dollars for the same thing. It's nuts. You know, I was going to ask you about this question of revenue and, and the cannibalization of revenue. As you're, it just sounds to me like you're making so much investment. You're, you're putting so much investment and time and energy and resource into transforming healthcare, and that takes money and time and resource and people. And I guess my question is, is there a tension? Are you getting any pushback from people? And I'm sure you are. But are you getting pushback uh, regarding we're preventing people from going to the ED? So ED revenue is going to suffer. Uh, how, how are you dealing with that? Because I know this is the conversation I've been reading about and hearing about across the country in hospitals is that concern, that reluctance to move too quickly, to make change too fast, to get ahead of the market. How do you think about that? Well, you must be at my cabinet meetings because I think that, you know, that whole issue of pace is that gets pushed on me a lot. Look, we've sacrificed a fair amount of net operating income to be ready for the future. The fantastic news and what I'm proud of is we've been able to do all these things. Um, we've been able to merge, you know, from four hospitals to 18 hospitals and have a better balance sheet, keep a, a above A rated place. Part of it is every one of our mergers has been done without writing a check. We've done it with governance as currency, people believing in the change of healthcare. When I said that, you know, we've sacrificed uh, net operating uh, income, we have, because we basically said we're in the twilight zone of volume to value. Everybody talks about volume to value like it's really happening. It's, you know, Zev, you know this. It's, it, in most places, it's BS. 87% of my revenue today is volume. So at the end of the day, I've had to make some sacrifices. But the way that we've done it is we exist on a four-pillar model what I call the old math and the new math. The old math is academic and clinical. There's nothing good about that math. <laughs> it's NIH funding, that's not going up anytime soon. It's, oh, well, we can always make it up from the ridiculous profits we make for being a safety net hospital. Well, that's, you know, in some respects, a money loser now. And in the past, we could say, all right, but we could always charge 15% more tuition a year. Well, that gigs up also. So the new math for us is innovation and venture philanthropy. And, and this year, Zev, for the first time, our new math, net operating income will equal that of our old math. Now, that's both a testimony of the fact that the old math is not really good math anymore, and the fact, so that, that company I talked to you about that we did the wearables with, that went on the Australian Stock Exchange, that's worth probably $30 million to us this year. So, you know, there's a great cartoon I saw, you know, uh, instead of risking doing anything new, let's, uh, let's continue our slow parade into obsolescence. You know, I think there's a lot of that, recognizing that if we don't do something new, we're going to be, you know, at some point, we're, we're going to suffer for it. You know, I hear in your words and in your actions and in your leadership a sense of responsibility that is just, I have to say, it's unique, it's different. It's beyond the four walls of an, of an individual organization. As you just pointed out, you are, in fact, stewarding the organization into the future. But you're different. You know, when we were kids, you know, you'd go and play basketball with someone and they'd say, hey, where are you from? You know, if you, if you shot a good shot. So I'm going to ask you this question. Where are you from? Where, where did you come from? How did you 
where is the sense of responsibility to the future and to patients? Because this is not normal, okay? And uh, it, it's not typical. You were number two in the, the disruptors that were selected uh, this past year in modern healthcare. I don't know who was number one, but I think you should have been number one. So w- what are you about? Number one was actually Trump. So I'll probably have a job in two years. I'll just leave it at that. But um, I'd like to say I come from a planet called Clavidia, because if you read my book, Bless This Mess, we talked about how uh, the American healthcare system got into the Intergalactic Council of Awesome and Cool Healthcare Systems in 2035. And we took advice from nine other planets that did it right. But it is a good point. I started my career as a DJ. I then got into medical school, but I, I did a residency in a two resident a year program and started out as a community obstetrician. The chances of my being an assistant professor at Jefferson, let alone their president, were probably 0%. So I've been playing with house money. You know, every job I took, um, you know, people told me not to take. You know, I built up a very, very large private practice in Pennsylvania. The story that I like to tell is, you know, uh, 97% of OBGYNs were male. Number one performed procedure in this country was hysterectomy. Number two was C-section. I happened to be listening. I had done nothing academically. Happened to be listening to an old professor, old male professor, talk about hysterectomy, saying, look, you know, whacking out a uterus is no big deal. Woman doesn't need it after a childbearing age. And, and four of the top 10 nonfiction bestsellers that month were uh, what my hysterectomy did to me, the hysterectomy hoax, and, you know, how a hysterectomy ruined my life. So I realized what we're thinking in the healthcare ecosystem is totally the opposite of what patients are thinking. So I took about a 60% pay cut, went into academic medicine, did some of the early work around psychological and sexual effects of hysterectomy, you know, and then moved up an academic ladder and frankly got tired of patients, I mean, of doctors complaining about the business of medicine. So got my degree at Warden with my own money about, that time was about $200,000 and got into the whole, you know, we have to think differently. So I guess what I'd say is that the chances that I went from being a DJ to a uh, obstetrician in Allentown to being, you know, the president and CEO of the fastest growing academic medical center through a series of other events, took over the dean at Drexel University College of Medicine after Allegheny went bankrupt, frankly, because it was a job that nobody wanted because Allegheny had just gone bankrupt. I mean, you know, I, I really feel like I'm playing with house money. And I have nothing to prove. I mean, you know, my next job is not going to be any place other than Jefferson. And when I'm done here, it's not going to be running an academic medical center. I'm not looking to, you know, become the president of any specialty society. I'm not looking to, you know, upset people or disrupt people. Or, but I tend to do that a lot. But I also feel that I have this unique opportunity to have a day job and really push people to think differently. And, and if I don't use it, I feel that I'm leaving something on the table. So I think, you know, I've taken a no limits approach around forcing people to, you know, look, I, I made a statement just, just to give you an example. I just got in a lot of trouble for where I said people have too much respect for doctors. When I said, you know, if, if you have an appointment at eight o'clock and, you know, somebody shows up at 845, you just assume that they had an emergency. I said, it's okay, Dr. Glasco, you probably had an emergency. Well, I would argue that there's probably a 50% chance I didn't have an emergency. It's just that I can get away with it, not consciously. So I got like just such pushback. How dare you do something that says people have too much respect for doctors? I said, is anything I said inaccurate? Is every doctor that shows up late for their 8 o'clock appointment, they've all had emergencies? I I can talk to a lot of office managers that will tell you that's not true. And if, if you really think it's true in your practice, why don't we put an RFID bracelet on your docs and see what they're actually doing before they show up. Well, it's not that it's not true. It's just that um, it's just that, that makes us look bad. Well, I got another idea. 
why don't you actually show up at eight and then you don't have to look bad and I don't have to write blogs. Right. And at the same time, I just, you know, I know that you are also, in fact, in our correspondence, you talked about the fact that you want the workforce, including physicians, to be creative and happy in their job and to find meaning in their job. So I, I just want to share that with the folks who are listening, because I know you've put a lot of thought and effort into that as well. And, and I've been to Philly a couple of times recently. I've interacted with some of your folks and they're your physician leaders that I met there at the Population Health Conference that uh, Dr. Nash puts on, you know, uh, also part of Jefferson. You know, everyone was excited. I mean, they were brimming with excitement. They were doing great stuff, uh, very, very pro uh, supportive of physicians and other providers of care. But to your point, I think you've infected them with this thinking about how do we really change healthcare to make it better for our patients and to build healthcare around the patients as opposed to shaping the patients into our legacy mold. So I just wanted to add that. I mean, if you want to say something to that, please do. No, I just say, you know, one of the best compliments that I've gotten since I've been here is one of the creditors that came by to accredit us gave us a compliment. It's like the IRS saying you did a great job on your taxes. They don't usually give you compliments. But I said, you're one of the few places we've been at over the last couple of years that's more optimistic about the future than the past. So, so what, what tends to happen, Zev, is, you know, yeah, there's pushback, and some of it's legitimate. Look, some of it, you know, we decide not to do. But physicians are burnt out because they don't feel capable to do the stuff that they came to do in healthcare. And that's true of nurses also. And, and as we start to think about the design of the human experience and delayering that and trying to get some of the, you know, regulators and that kind of thing out of their world, getting them closer to patients through some of these things, whether that's telehealth or whatever, has really gotten them excited. Now, you know, their first thing is, no, it's not how we do things. So we get through that. Then they go through, it's like the seven stages of grieving. Then they, they end up with, if you talk, now, it was really my idea, so which is fine. And you know, I like them to think it was their idea. But telehealth is a great example. You know, our folks have really embraced telehealth. When I brought it up in 2013, said all of you have to train and do this, it wasn't as popular. From what, what I've heard, I mean, you required every physician to participate in some sort of telehealth. Is that right? Yeah, so what we did when I first got here in 2013, you got to understand, telehealth was like speaking a foreign language back then. We invested a lot. We created a homegrown uh, piece. And I went to every chair and I said, all right, because they, 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 they basically told me it was ridiculous, thought I was crazy. Now they know I'm crazy. And I said, all right, well, whether I'm crazy or not, new rule is that if you want to get your incentive this year, you will get 80% of your faculty trained in telehealth and do at least one telehealth piece a month. And by the way, if you do that, you'll get a 20% bonus on your incentive. And if you don't do it, I don't care if you do everything else right, you'll get 20% less on your incentive. 17 of the 18 chairs did it. The other one that didn't is not here. He's here on the earth. It's just, I mean, I didn't kill him. He's just, he's just not at Jefferson. And, you know, again, I think that they've embraced it. You know, we, one of the really cool things, let me just say this. I think, I think mission and vision is so important. And you look at a place like Philadelphia, everybody had the same vision. We're going to be the premier academic medical center in Philadelphia. And nothing to do with patients, nothing to do with equities. It's about us, right? We're going to be better than Penn or Jefferson or Temple or Drexel. So we said, well, you know, you know that's not what we're here for. So we, our, our mission, if you look on our website now, is we improve lives. Our vision is reimagining healthcare education and delivery to create unparalleled value. And we have three values. One is Put people first and do the right thing. A lot of people have that. But our third is be bold and think different. So when I talk to anybody that works for me, a chair, a dean, or whatever, and you know they're, they're real good at saying, here's how we're putting people first, here's how we're doing the right thing. But what are you doing to be bold and think different? Uh, 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 next time, you better come back and tell me that. 
because that's one of the three values that you're going to get graded on. And our whole telehealth program was started by six folks from another academic medical center whose goal was to be number one in NIH funding, who, when we had our sort of coming out party for our new vision, said, we had an aha moment. We recognized that we couldn't Nobel Prize for telehealth and value and not make it to the cover of the alumni bulletin because we're not going to help them become number one in NIH funding, but we're reimagining care to create value, and that's now your vision. So they all came over here. We did put them in the cover of the alumni bulletin. So the fact is, we're able to attract people based on that new vision and that four-pillar model that might not have come together before. So you're telling the story, Steve, about these folks who realized they weren't going to achieve what they wanted to achieve in terms of patient care, the folks who were applying. Let me ask you this. If you had sort of a final word or final message to the folks out there who they're not at your institution, they're not working with you, what, what would you say to folks? What, what is your challenge, even to the other CEOs? Because I, I think everyone's struggling with these issues. You're taking a very, very different path. Do you have a message for folks from the CEOs down? Yeah. So I would say two things. Uh, for the CEOs, I would say don't be afraid. You know, one of my Wharton professors used to say, uh, you should always have five people under you that think they can do a better job and three that are right. And I think what tends to happen in healthcare, we get scared when, you know, so everybody under me is better at what they do than I am. And it's partly what's allowed me to, to do some of these things. But then the other thing I'd ask people to think about, whether CEO or even below that, is recognize that when an industry is going through a once-in-a-lifetime change, the absolute biggest risk, Zev, is doing things the way you did it before. So this whole concept of, oh, Steve, what you're doing is risky, I would argue, you know, it isn't. And, you know, some of my learning, I got to be on an advisory board for Apple in the early 2000s, pre-iPhone. And when Steve Jobs decided to divert money from the Macs and the, and the operating systems to the digital, you know, secret thing, he recognized that they were going through a once-in-a-lifetime change from computer industries to a digital lifestyle. And Gateway and Dell were still thinking incrementally, saying it'd be too risky to do what Steve's doing. So I think if we were doing, if Jefferson was doing, if I was espousing, you know, digital, global type things at a time where everything was stable, people could say, you're crazy. But I would argue what's really crazy is thinking that you're going to be able to be running a hospital, just hoping people will come into your hospital when they're sick, and that that will be a, a business that either makes sense or is the best thing for the community five years from now, when everything else is going to become digital, consumer, whatever. Let me, let me give you one other example. Think about this for a second, Zev. We're the only industry that isn't global in two ways. One is if you're the head of finance for Shanghai Bank and you come to the United States, you can be the head of any bank in this country. If you're the chair of cardiothoracic surgery at the best hospital in China and you come here, we make you retake your residency. So we actually started the first medical school in the world with Catholic University where you'll be able to be able to practice in the European Union and the United States. You'll get a dual degree. That should happen every place. The second thing is we have the only Department of Integrative Health in an academic medical center. It was spurred by a $45 million gift from Bernie Marcus, the founder of Home Depot. And it's just asinine that the way that two-thirds of the world gets its care, like with things like acupuncture, yoga, and Ayurvedic medicine, we view as alternative because it, you know, it's not drugs and surgery. 
which by the way, leads to over-surgery and things like the opioid crisis. So for me, I think that the, the advice I'd give is, look, you have to run your business, but if you're a 55-year-old leader, a chair, dean, practice leader, or CEO, and you want to be in your job for 10 years, and you have any inkling that you're going to be able to keep things pretty much the way they are today, 10 years from now, you're the one that's crazy, not me. Steve, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this and benefited from this conversation. You have so much wisdom, and I hope your folks are taping you and uh, transcribing what you're saying because it's it's so important for the future of healthcare, for the future of our health, and I can't thank you enough. I'd like to sign off and just as I always do, thank the folks out there who have been listening, uh, those who are, are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and those of you who are also supporting the, the providers of care. And uh, we really appreciate it. And again, I hope you've gotten as much out of this as I have or even a fraction of what I've gotten out of it because it's just so powerful and so moving and so encouraging and, and hopeful. And, and so I want to thank everyone. This is Zev Neuwirth. Until next time, be well. Folks, this is the last episode of the spring 2019 season of Creating a New Healthcare. We will resume in early September, and we have an incredible lineup for you in the fall. Speaking of incredible lineups, this past season has been truly remarkable. And if you haven't listened to each and every episode, I really urge you to do that over the next few weeks uh, until we start the new season. I'm not going to go over every episode, but just some of the highlights. We we had a chance to hear from uh, Dr. Richard Barron, the CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and their foundation, and he introduced the trust practice and the trust challenge uh, on this podcast and clearly something that is so needed in healthcare today, trust. We uh, interviewed Dr. Sachin Jain, the CEO of CareMore, and the amazing work they're doing in elder care and complex chronic care and really leading the country in terms of their work in social isolation. We had the extraordinary uh, experience of part two with Kevin Mabbitt, the chief consumer officer at Intermountain. Again, he is magical. And I don't just say that because he was the chief consumer officer of uh, Global Disney, but he really is doing amazing things in healthcare. Dr. David Levine from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who is working on a number of uh, really innovative projects, uh, such as the hospital at home. And it just blew my mind that he predicts that uh, within two, three years, 30 to 50% of all hospitalizations uh, will occur, can occur in the home. Karen Hagen, uh, episode number 60, CEO of Val Health. She works closely with Kevin Volpe and David Ash of the University of Pennsylvania, their behavioral economics group, their CHIBE. And she is she and her colleagues are, are bringing behavioral economics into the mainstream of healthcare delivery and medical care. Brilliant work. Uh, Anand Iyer from WellDoc, the chief strategy officer there, who gave us just s- such tremendous insight into digital health. Episode number 63, not to be missed, uh, with Dr. Mandy Cohen, who is the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And what she and her teams are doing is truly remarkable. I mean, really revolutionizing healthcare in North Carolina and in so many ways. And I urge you to listen to that one as well as 
Peggy O'Kane, episode 65. She is the founder and CEO of NCQA. This is a woman who almost 30 years ago started this movement or was part of the, the start of this movement of quality and quality improvement. And again, such an amazingly courageous and visionary person. I don't even begin to understand how she could have done what she did 30 years ago and, and really taken on the medical establishment. And uh, again, I take my hat off to her. The next one, uh, episode 66, Scott Weingarten, the founder and CEO of Stanson Health. He is a remarkable physician executive and physician entrepreneur and serial entrepreneur. And what he is doing with Stanson Health, which is now part of Premier. Folks, if you have not heard of Stanson Health, you must listen to this. And even if you have, you will learn so much more about what they're doing and how rapidly they're evolving their service. And the same is true of Jay Desai, the CEO and founder of Patient Ping. Again, if you haven't heard of Jay Desai or Patient Ping, this is a must listen because you will hear about him soon enough. And what he and his colleagues are doing at Patient Ping is just remarkable. And even if you are familiar with it, this talk really just uh, opened my eyes as to what they're doing. And of course, this most recent interview, the final one, number 68 with Stephen Clasco, the CEO of Jefferson Health. Stephen, of course, is a visionary, revolutionary, uh, amazingly positively disruptive leader in healthcare, one of, the, one of the forefathers of, I think, the future of healthcare delivery. And again, just unbelievably innovative, a not to miss episode. And so uh, folks, I, I don't know how to say it any other way. This series, this creating a healthcare is, is essentially is a master's class series in healthcare innovation, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Uh, the stories you hear here are, are people who are just amazingly bold, courageous leaders in healthcare, not to be missed. And I urge you again, we're going to start a whole new season in the beginning of September. And please take this opportunity over the next few weeks during the summer to go back and listen to those episodes that you, you have not had a chance to listen to. I wish you a wonderful summer and looking forward to beginning a new season in September and uh, reconnecting with you all. Be well.